Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. This is the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast, and I'm Peter Banatini. Here I discuss all things brain imaging and modeling with scientists in our brain mapping community from around the world. We delve into challenges, controversies, and new developments, as well as the future of brain imaging. Today, my guest is Dr. Todd Constable, a professor in the Department of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging at Yale University. He's also the director of MRI research in the Department of Diagnostic Radiology in the Yale School of Medicine. Todd received his PhD in 1990 in medical physics from the University of Toronto, then moved to Yale for his postdoc and has been there ever since. While his training was in physics, he's clearly become a neuroscientist as well, as he's been working in fMRI since the early 90s. He's still active in both the physics development and the neuroscience applications of MRI, working on low-cost MRI strategies, as well as working on more insightful ways to use fMRI data for clinical use. Specifically, he has mentored some truly outstanding students, including Emily Finn and Monica Rosenberg, who've helped pioneer the use of fMRI for predictive modeling of individual traits. Here we talk about, among other things, uh, more of the benefits, power, and potential clinical applications of predictive modeling. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, Todd, Todd Constable, Dr. Todd Constable at uh, Yale University. Welcome, and uh, hey, good Peter, to see great you. to be here. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so just to just to get started with this, uh, um, so our careers. So, so we're kind of you know I always I've known you for at least uh, yeah. I think we we first met in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, at a GE pulse sequence programming uh, class. Right. I, th- I guess we had a week in Waukesha to learn how to program the the GE Siemens or the GE Cigna scanner and I, I think that's you were still a grad student in wisconsin i guess and i was a grad student at university yeah. of toronto yeah it's pretty funny yeah yeah i mean <laughs> well and uh i think uh right you and adam anderson and uh and eric wong was there with me and and we were just yeah we were trying to this is before we even were or just as we were programming the uh the scanner to do echo player yeah, imaging yeah. and um but yeah, so so we've known each other for a long time. We we're we're both sort of physicists, but we're both sort of uh, have gotten in in a big way into the. Yeah, uh, I sometimes call myself a neuroscientist now, uh, <laughs> just to get yeah. some, uh, try to get you know garner some respect on the neuroscience side. And there's lots of physicists that call themselves neuroscientists, so I feel that's like it's okay, you know. Yeah, I do the same. I do the same. Um, and I actually, you know, honestly, I feel like, you know, it's interesting because, you know, it takes four years to get your PhD and you feel like you're stuck with that. But the fact is, is that, you know, we've been doing neuroscience for, you know, 20 years and so might as well uh, call ourselves neuroscientists sure. and um, we'll become a little Once bit. Once you get your PhD, you can so, work on whatever you want. So I think that's me too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so just before we get started, uh, uh, let's just talk a little bit about your background. You went to the University of Winnipeg, uh, 
got your degree in physics um, and then got your PhD in uh, physics as well at the University of Toronto. So, so what? Yeah, it's kind of a, you know, I didn't have any grand plans. So actually I was working at a summer camp, taking out canoe trips um, the summer before college. And uh, a lot of my friends at the camp were going to university. So that summer I decided, well, maybe I'll go to university too. So (laughs) I signed up to go to University of Winnipeg that summer and I went there in the fall. They took, uh, they were all taking pre-med classes. So I took pre-med and it was, uh, you know, biology, biochemistry, organic chemistry and stuff. And I hated that. And uh, so second year I took physics and math and I loved those. And um, so then I was thinking, well, what am I going to do with a physics or a math degree? And I thought, well, at least physics is applied math and maybe I could get a job with physics. Um, So I majored in physics, graduated after five years um, because I had not started physics until second year. But, um, uh, and then I did a master, then when I graduated, I, I didn't know what to do with my physics degree. And I looked around and there was this medical physics program, which is all about, you know, radiation dosimetry and, uh, you know, cancer treatment using radiotherapy. And so I, I did a master's in that at University of Manitoba. And then I thought, well, that's kind of boring because, you know, um, X-ray physics hasn't really changed since 1897 when Madame Curie first, you know, <laughs> discovered the first X-rays. And um, so at the time, MRI was exploding as kind of a clinical modality. And uh, so I, I wrote a, you know, I typed a letter to uh, Mark Hankelman at University of Toronto. And I said, can I come and do my PhD with you? And I interviewed there and he took me on, which was like, I don't know why, but um, it was great. And uh, so that's how I got that's how I got there. And then from there, I, I, as I was graduating, uh, John Gore was here at Yale and advertising for postdoc. Um, so I applied. I didn't know where Yale was at the time. I had, I had heard of Yale University, but I had to look it up on a map to see where it was. Um, and I came and interviewed. And I got the job here, and I haven't actually applied for any other jobs since, nor have I interviewed. Yeah. But uh, um, So, yeah, it's been an interesting ride. That's that's great. That's great. It's funny that you mentioned that you took an extra year. I, I, I started engineering and I, I took I switched to physics and took me an extra semester. Yeah. I guess yeah. uh, kind of a year. But yeah, that's, I tell people you know when, uh, now I tell people you, I, I had a nephew actually used to say. I, I'm not going to college yet because I don't know what I want to take. And it's like, well, you're not going to figure that out unless you go, you know, go take a bunch of stuff, see what you like, and then follow it, you know. Uh, and I have two yeah. kids in college now and they're kind of doing that. So, so yeah, well, yeah, I'll leave that. <laughs> yeah, I get the impression that people, I think kids are more anxious about, uh, you know, f- having everything figured out like way ahead of time. Whereas I, I did the same. I just kind of like, oh, let's see what I like and then figure it out. But yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so cool. And uh, yeah, I, you know, you're right. Um, the medical physics area is well established, but um, but you're right. It's sort of a little bit stationary relative. Yeah, I not. shouldn't be so cynical. I mean, there have been lots of developments in uh, better treatment planning and better, you know, less destruction of normal tissue and better destruction of tumorous tissue and things like that. And so it's much more sophisticated today than it was, say, in 1897. But uh um, but yeah, it just doesn't see the same growth. And the cool thing, the coolest thing about, you know, MRI research is that, you know, you can write a program on your workstation, go down and run it on the scanner. And you're actually, you know, you're manipulating protons on water and you're seeing that in, yeah. in, in an individual. Um, it's just kind of crazy that you can, 
you can do that. Um, and so I find that I still find that fascinating today that that we can do that sort of thing. Yeah, and 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 that's the thing that kind of drew me to MRI as well. Um, just the fact that there's so much information that you can get out that you're still that we're still figuring out. I mean, we're still you know, don't exactly know uh, what, what more we can extract based on what, with how we can manipulate the RF, the gradients. Yeah, exactly. So it's finding. Um, yeah. Uh, so, okay. So you worked with Mark Hengelman uh, at Toronto and then that was just before fMRI came along you came to Yale and then you got into fMRI. Um, yeah, three days. Noticed- uh, we did our first fMRI experiments here on a 1.5 T, I think just after you guys in Wisconsin. Uh, no, that was the, um, Sorry, I'm getting that confused with the connectivity stuff. Uh, but we no, we did uh, some of our first uh, fMRI experiments here in the early 90s. And I remember, you know, putting people in the scanners and doing t-tests on the data and things like that, trying to uh, uh, see effects. And it, was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, one thing that, you know, I saw that paper and and uh, I was amazed that you pulled it off with, I mean, the, the main point of your paper was that it was, it was multi-shot. It was a standard green echo. Did you have any, you had no navigators or anything like that? In the, in the what, which paper is that? What, uh... Well, there was, a, there was a paper I just happened to see. It was in 1993, uh, fMRI 1.5 Tesla using Korean Echo MRI. It was an Echo. Oh, yeah. Echo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you could do that. Was with, a... uh, <laughs> slow, yeah, I guess slow, you... slow acquisitions. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool, cool. I mean, it, yeah, it's... Uh, because right, people are trying to do that now, and obviously they can. But uh, you know, the shot to shot, the motion artifacts propagate as ghosts, and, and it seems like it causes a lot more noise. But well, you're right. If you, you know, if you well, actually, some of that uh, stuff that came out recently in Nature, you know, there was that uh, what was it, two millisecond temporal resolution, where they uh, it's almost like a cardiac cine thing, right? Where uh, yep. you just stitch it together over many cycles, and uh, you can get super high temporal resolution, and that that's pretty cool. Um, that's not actually what yeah. we did there, but um, there we just, just you know did long blocks of on and off task. Yeah, yeah, but either way, so since then um, uh, you've gotten into a lot of things. It's actually amazing that uh, and kind of similar uh, to me as well is that that you know you have a group that's right at the interface of methods. You know you had you were dabbling, you're still dabbling, and uh, not really dabbling. I would say more than dabbling. Uh, in the hardware, in the in the acquisition, the reconstruction, but then you're getting more graduate students and postdocs that are neuroscientists, and so, and also kind of at the interface of like data science as mm-hmm. well, um, and and so, and you your lab is just taken off. I mean, I just highlighted just some recent, you know, you you, Zalin uh, uh, Shen, Shilin, uh, yeah. you know, had Shen Atlas that was that's used a lot. Uh, of course, Emily Finn yeah. who. Super- we shared your student, me as a postdoc. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things, um, uh, so I've been super lucky here at Yale to work with a ton of, uh, I've just had access to a ton of great graduate students and, um, you know, Emily is one of them. Uh, Monica Rosenberg was also fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, I've since had Abby Green, Corey Horian, uh, Stephanie Noble, like there's a pretty long list. Uh, my first graduate student actually was Jed Meltzer, who's a faculty at University of Toronto now doing research mostly on EEG, um, but uh, he did fMRI in the early days. Uh, so I've I've been really lucky to work with some really smart students, and I tend to point them in a direction and let them run. And I always tell people we have everything here for them to you know thrive, and and some of them really do, and uh, do some really fantastic things. So. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's that's great. So, and 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 what you've done. I mean, obviously, your advice sort of at that interface and and sort of the point, the direction that you had them go has been useful. So, and of course, they're really talented. Uh, um, and let's so let's talk about the area that you uh, have sort of been uh, creating a niche for yourself and sort of pushing the field on, and that is uh, the idea of of you know starting with Emily at least with doing brain fingerprinting. Uh, and then going from there to to use you know either resting state or naturalistic stimuli or tasks to to identify individuals uh, to identify their their phenotypes identify with like Monica like you know sustained attention and um, uh, so it also seems that your your views on and at least my view on uh, uh, it seems the issue of parcellation is is becoming, uh, the field is becoming more aware of it. Um, and, and so how has, like since Emily's paper, for instance, how has your view, uh, your research on, on the idea of looking at functional connectivity changes with, with a fixed parcellation? Uh, how has that changed? How has that evolved? Well, I think it's evolved and maybe it's, um, matured, uh, so the um, the parcellation problem. <clears throat> so there, there's a couple of things that we can talk about. We can talk about predictive modeling, which I uh, yeah, will definitely talk about. We'll talk about parcellation. Uh, the parcellation problem, uh, you know, has to focus on what the purpose is. And in terms of the you know connectome-based predictive modeling, so our CPM stuff or modeling that other people do. The actual parcellation in, in CPM doesn't matter that much. We get the same results, so depending on which parcellation we use. Um, yeah. So from that point of view, you know, because and the reason that is is because we're we're taking edges from you know 700 nodes or um, you know a thousand edges kind of thing and collapsing those into a single number. And, and at the end of the day, when you do that which particular parcellation you use doesn't really impact that very much. And so that's why you see everybody choosing their favorite parcellation and, and going to town and, and there's no problem with that for the most part. Yeah. Um, I think where the, uh, where I maybe uh, differ from some of the field and where I've had, uh, I think an impact is, um, you know, this recognition that the nodes on, on a functional level are flexible. Um, and, to me, so we, I, I had a graduate student, Mariva Saleh, who was uh, awesome, and she went into industry after. She's working at a startup on the West Coast now, but um, she she did some, you know, we wanted to see what happens to parcellation under different brain states. And the way to, you know, manipulate brain state is to do continuous performance tasks. So you could do resting state. And then, uh, you know, we had six different tasks that we could run. And actually, we ran me 30 times, so I then became a group of 30 clones. And the idea was, could we get a group parcellation on these clones, look at day-to-day um, -day, uh, repeatability of the parcellation, and look at the impact of brain state on these parcellations. And that data, by the way, is available yeah. on OpenNeuro. Um, and, uh, and it turned out that, you know, the parcellations dramatically change uh, depending on what the brain's doing. And I was surprised. Uh, we got a lot of, we had two responses to that work when we were trying to submit it. And they're both kind of funny. Uh, one is that, well, that's trivial. <laughs> 
you know, everybody says, well, of course, you know, the brain is flexible and, you know, it rearranges and we know that, you know, from 20 or 30 years of fMRI. And I, you, I could say, yeah, I guess you could argue that, uh, although most of the people in the parcellation world wouldn't necessarily be advocating for that. The other uh, response yeah. we got a lot of is that's wrong. And we get like these weird things like what the neurons are jumping around or something, you know, like what does that mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think that it's, um, you know, the field has been, so, you know, for the first 200 years of neuroscience, what did they have for tools? They had microscopes and they could look at anatomy, right? And that's all they could look at. And so if you look at like 90% of neuroscience, it's focused on anatomy still. Um, yeah. But why are they looking at anatomy? They're looking at anatomy because they're interested in function. We can look at function. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not look at function? <laughs> this yes. and so you know when you talk about this uh these flexible nodes you know let's take a look at what's in there right um there's about six uh, i'm going to go through some quick math here and i made myself some notes from from a paper yeah. i have but there, there's about 16 billion neurons in the cortex let's say and there's a uh with two millimeter cubed voxels there's about eighty-five thousand gray matter voxels so that's 188,000 neurons per voxel. And with a 400 node atlas then, um, that's about 40 million neurons in a node. And I think this thought that, you know, that's gonna be a fixed entity is just silly. I mean, do you really think those 40 million neurons are all doing the same thing? I mean, they're not, right? Why would anybody design a system like that or why would a system evolve like that with 40 million fold redundancy in every node with sharp yeah. boundaries there there are subsets of neurons that are tuned to various aspects of uh function and what we see in these parcellations are different subsets uh being emphasized according to what the task conditions are and in any task condition you have multiple inputs and multiple outputs and it's a very complex space and these neurons are, you know, the brain is tuned to all of those different complexities. And that's what we're witnessing, I think. So there's, it, it's completely logical to me that we have a flexible functional architecture on top of a fixed structural in infrastructure. Um, but I think 200 years, we're fighting 200 years of neuroanatomy where they thought that they would define things based on, you know, cytoarchitecture and that, you know, if they could just get the right cell measurements and things like that, um, they'll figure it all out and they'll know what the functional areas are. But the functional areas are much more fluid than that um, based on what's being activated and what the neurons are tuned to. Um, 40 yeah. million neurons in a node, they're just not doing the same thing. And I think the basic assumption yeah. of a lot of these parcellation studies is, is that they are somehow doing that and they just got to find the right boundary. I think that's wrong. Yeah, and so you're saying that. So, so just to step back, so the so of course across subjects, there's subtle differences in, you know, how things are parcelated based on their anatomy. But at the same time, yeah, I saw I saw this movie associated with your more recent paper on this that shows actually the parcels, you know, they're they're not only I mean they're they're not only changing size but they're changing shape and 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 some you know the borders are going into others and then others are going to the next and and so that's sort of suggesting that. Either you know you're hoping it's not you know some sort of a bold effect or draining whatever I don't think it's that but you're you're okay. suggesting that depending on the task 
and only maybe even depending over time, you know, the edges and also internal structure of the parcels are, it, there's this sort of spilling over. So why, why would it necessarily spill over into the adjacent areas as opposed to like, you know, you can imagine even spilling into other parcels more distance as well. I mean, not, you know, you, well, I mean, so in most parcelation algorithms, you have a constraint that they have to be contiguous. Uh, that is open yeah. to discussion, whether the parcels have to be contiguous or not. It makes it simpler to assume that they are contiguous. So you don't have like two nodes that are considered, you know, separate nodes that are considered one parcel. But the, um, so first of all, you know, you, you talked about anatomy. Uh, so in the experiment with me, it's the same anatomy. Uh, because yeah. I had 30 clones. Um, and so, right. you know, there's no anatomical differences there. There's no changing anatomy over time, uh, over that short time scale. Um, and, uh, you know, so we can answer that. Another question that, or, or another comment that people make uh, as a possible refute of this finding is that uh, it's almost like a butterfly effect, right? You get a little change in one region of the brain due to activity there. And that kind of propagates and, and the way these algorithms are, it just, you know, it amplifies and everything changes everywhere just because it's a dynamic, complex system. And the argument against, you know, that's that could be true and there could be an element of that there, but you can look at an individual node, just isolate a, a region and plot a, a cloud of connectivity through uh, through time and or through different brain states, which we did in our inside information paper, um, where we yeah. isolated nodes and looked specifically at, you know, how the neurons or how the voxels within the node couple. And, and you see there's gross changes in the coupling of adjacent neurons. Um, and yeah. so, and, and even if you look at, you know, in, in cytoarchitectures, this is another frustrating thing from the anatomic world, and and I apologize in advance to anybody who's a neuroanatomist, because um, a lot of what I say about neuroanatomy is negative here. Um, the uh, you know they draw lines right by hand, and the borders aren't that clean. I mean, you know, certainly V1 is clean, the motor cortex is pretty clean, but once you get into the cortex, nothing is clean. And you know that it, even in V1, right, you have columnar organization. Uh, you, you, you know, you have all these different organizations depending on whether you're looking at, you know, flashing checkerboard, some sort of polar angle effect or, you know, brightness effects and things like that. The visual cortex is complex, even though it's a, there's clear borders around V1, and that's fine. There's clear borders around the motor cortex too, like your finger areas can be mapped and the hand areas can be mapped and things like that. And, and we saw some of that recently. Um, and so that's fine. But when you get to the cortex, it's it's not that clear. If you want to call cortex, you know, the cortex, that's the area, fine. You know, yeah. then we know what that is. Uh, but if you want to start to break it down, I mean, you have to look at these subtle, you know, it's like, instead of having 10 fingers in the cortex, you actually have, you know, 10 billion uh, processes that all interact. And, you know, you're not going to map those out to uh, a single node or something like that. So yeah. <clears throat> I don't know how we started on this, but the uh, the bottom line is it's complicated yeah, yeah. and it it's not in disagreement with anything based on cytoarchitecture or, you know, fixed right. structure. It's just acknowledging that there's complex organization there and we're sensitive to that in our parcellation algorithms.
Yeah, and, that, and that's actually where I think there's an opportunity. I mean, it seems to suggest, right? I mean, that seems like how the field progresses. You make these simplifying assumptions, you see things don't fit, and then you back up. And it seems that, right, I mean, people, uh, obviously everyone would understand that, that uh, you know, the brain on some level is extremely structured. I mean, you do have, on some scale, you have regions. and Sure, oh, definitely. Things, and then, you can see in, in neurosurgery, right, or, or in, you know, you get a lesion and lesion studies, you get a deficit and there's, there's clear, you know, some regions are clearly associated with some functions and they can interrupt those functions. Yeah. But then, but then what you're suggesting, and I, I think is really cool that, you know, you have this continuum that, you know, all the way down to the individual neuron level, the organization is almost, it starts to be almost completely random. Oh no, I mean, I'm not like, even suggesting it's random. It's just, it's complicated. Um, and we're not, we're nowhere near, you know, if there's 40 million neurons in a node, we're nowhere near sorting out yeah. that complexity, right? We're looking at some gross, yeah. you know, integration of 40 million neurons in one node and, and how right. they interact with the 40 million neurons and all the adjacent nodes. Um, yeah. So yeah. it's not yeah. that, um, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's just we're nowhere near the resolution to, to break that down. Right. And the reason why I say random, I, it's, yeah, that's not the, exactly the right word, but on some level, if, like for instance, if you break it even down to a coarser scale, like uh, ocular dominance columns, I mean, you can't really map different subjects. It's, there's some randomness. To, sure. There's a pattern, but there's some randomness. And so you can imagine that neurons, how they decide which other neurons to talk to is sort of a, you know, this, this semi, this quasi random process that sort of gets set up. So you can't, so it's an interesting principle in some sense where on that scale uh, you're seeing these nodes change and with a task or whatever. And that's sort of opening up the idea that, um, yeah, like you said, it's complicated. You had mentioned to me, that reminds me of the MVPA stuff uh, of Jim Haxby. You had mentioned to me that, yeah. uh, you know, what's the implications of our changing uh, things on MVPA? And I've and I i I've talked to Jim about this and I think, uh, in MVPA, you know, there's a fixed pattern that uh, is associated with, you know, specific stimuli. I, what I had said to him, and I don't think he's done this experiment yet, is I think if you change brain states, so you had the person doing, um, you know, a dual task where, you, you know, they're doing something else, I think MVPA will still work, but I think you'll have different patterns. And that would be more evidence for this sort of rearrangement of the system. Uh, as different inputs come in and, and, and go out and stuff. So I, I've, you know, MVPA works and it's, uh, it's meaningful and it makes sense to me. Uh, I do think that it's another way that you could actually show that uh, the brain rearranges under different uh, conditions. Not completely rearranges. And, yeah. and as, it, as you said, I mean, the, there's definitely structure there. The frontal lobe is the frontal lobe, right? The hippocampus is, right. you know, has a specific role and it's always in the same place. Um, so, you know, things are fixed and defined by structure and you need structure to have function. But um, but I think this, uh, there's, there's it's, it's weird in the field. Like if you ask anybody directly, is the brain flexibly organized? They'll say, yeah, sure. But um, but we get into all kinds of cases where people make you know do some analysis. Like actually, in one of our papers, we showed that um, you know we identified actually fifty papers in the literature that used graph theory under different conditions, and and 
they were interested in looking at how the edge connections change, but they totally ignored the fact that the nodes are changing and they used fixed nodes. And why is that okay? Like, why is it cool to look at edges and just impose some node map and and not look at node changes? Because in fact, what they're attributing to edge changes in some cases might actually be node level changes. Uh, Right. That was a paper by right. Wendy Luo, Luo uh, L-U-O, in my group, um, who also did the inside information paper. <clears throat> yeah. So, so what do we do? So, so you know, in trying to push the field, um, in trying to push, you know, what would be your your ideal resolution? Obviously, as high as possible. But I mean, in terms of how to analyze this data. Well, I don't think to, we, uh, you know, so the resolution questions an open question and I don't know that you know doubling our resolution or something's going to get us anywhere near solving right. that problem right um, yeah so but I, I think we need to be aware of these things and I think we need to know when it's so for example it's not important in CPM or when you're doing these brain behavior models because those models end up collapsing over so much information that you know it doesn't really matter what atlas you use. But I think that if you're doing graph theory approaches and looking at, you know, changes between a language task and, and rest or something, you need to consider the fact that the, the nodes that you're using are, are different. Um, and, yeah. and a lot of work gets done where they, uh, they just impose an atlas and just go with it and that's never questioned. And I, I think at some point we got to be a little more careful about that. Uh, I think in the ABCD study, uh, you know, this is already starting to happen where they impose um, adult atlases on the ABCD data. And uh, I'm sure we're going to see papers where they look at time one and time two with the same atlas. And I don't know that yep. that's actually all that cool. But, um, you know, they, yeah. uh, it happens. And yet, if you ask people, is the brain changing or things flexible? And they, they'll say yes. Um, <laughs> but but they're hoping it's just in terms of connectivity between yeah. the nodes. That would yeah. be ideal. But uh... well, sometimes it's yes, <laughs> but we don't know what else to do. And I guess well, what else to do would be to impose you know yeah. an individualized atlas uh, and try to accommodate or or measure that change um, across time. Um, so there are ways to to account for these changes, uh, but a lot of the times that's not happening. Yeah. Yeah. If you could actually, I mean, you can't explore, you know, all possible dimensions of task space no, or you know, yeah. configuration space. So, um, so you can't really, you know, well, let's say there's a million, you know, there's an infinite number of brain configurations that you could have. Uh, I'm comfortable with that. Um, I do think that there's a space that we can work in that we can still learn a lot about the brain. Um, without solving, you know, what's happening at, at every neuron or every, you know, every 10 neurons right. or something like that. Um, so there are ways yeah. to, I, and, and the field is doing great at this, at extracting information on on function from connectivity patterns, let's say. Um, and, yeah. and there's a ton that we can do, uh, but we have to be aware of some of these constraints. Yeah, I mean, even, even a, so you may might have had this in your paper, but, um, I mean, are you, there is even like certain areas that are yeah, that reconfigure more than other areas. I mean, that could be also an interesting sort of insight as to like, for instance, if it's just motor cortex, does that uh, you know stay more fixed? But you know, prefrontal areas actually you know might show more morphing in some. some yeah, so, yeah, we haven't we haven't done that explicit al analysis, but uh, I think what you just proposed is probably the case. Uh, yeah, another. Uh, I'll tell yeah. you another. Uh, 
<laughs> I'm just going to go at the neuroanatomist one more time here. Another funny yeah. thing uh, in the field with neuroanatomy is there, you know, the historical ideal of symmetry. Um, so historically, you know, neural anatomists would like slice a half a brain and do all their analysis on that and define things and then flip it over and, and that would be the other half um, because the techniques are so tedious and brain samples are so hard to get and things like that. Uh, and there's yeah. this, this thing in the field about symmetry. And in fact, there was just a recent paper about changing the Schaefer Atlas, uh, developing a symmetric homolog of the Schaefer Atlas uh, that was published. And if you go and Google, um, if you Google axial MRI and look under images, and you look at every one of those axial MRIs that comes up, none of those are symmetric. The brain is not symmetric, yeah. right? I mean, we're symmetric in that we have our arm, we have an arm on our right and an arm on our left side, and you know we're kind of symmetric in that way. And certainly, we have carotids feeding the brain, you know, in a symmetric pattern from either side. But the lobes are not symmetric. Yeah. There's very little, uh, like at the level of uh, detail that we'd like to work at, there's there's all kinds of asymmetries in the brain, and. Yeah. The neuroanatomy people keep wanting to pull everything back into a symmetric sort of space. And and I, I don't understand that. Like what you're interested in is the function. Go with the function. We've done some work where yes. we we took one of our, you know, the Shen Atlas actually is not symmetric. There's actually two extra nodes in one hemisphere than the other. Um, and uh, we took you know, we took half of that, we flipped it on the other into the other hemisphere, and we did the uh, the opposite for the other half. So we had two symmetric atlases then, and then we ran our individualized parcellation on that and let them go, and they went back to asymmetric atlases. Um, <laughs> you know, it's there's but there's this there's this, uh, and I think Van Essen has written this about the beauty of you know, and the nice thing about this result is that we have symmetry you know, across the hemispheres. And I'm like, why is that a good thing? You know, the brain is not actually that symmetric. Uh, I think there's a, yeah. there, there's a funny, there's a lot of uh, legacy sort of neuroanatomy uh, opinions that uh, are imposed on function where, again, you know, what we're really interested in looking at is function, not, not, not anatomy. Right. I mean, it seems that the symmetry argument as well is sort of another example of, of you know, we, we, we try to have these, these, these sort of constraints based on what we think is the a principle of how things are organized. But, you know, it's more interesting than that. And it, but it's, it's strange with the brain is that you have, you know, once again, I mean, you have symmetry, but it's not perfect symmetry. And it seems that there's meaningful information in that asymmetry yeah. that we have yet to figure out and, and sort of work through. And, and I acknowledge, you know, so functionally, sure, you know, left and right motor cortex are, are you know, in opposite hemispheres. And, you you know, if you're left language dominant, you have Broca's and Wernicke's on the left, but there are actually in connectivity studies, you can pull up the homologs on the right. Um, you know, so there is there is symmetry, uh, but I don't know why we don't, would impose symmetry when we know that there are subtle differences and we're potentially losing yeah. information or, or hurting ourselves by imposing the symmetry. Um, yeah. Uh, it's just a funny thing that I don't get from the, uh, from the neuroanatomy <laughs> world. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as far back as, you know, just look, even looking at the plane of temporality, I mean, it's, it's hugely different uh, left and right. I mean, language areas and whatever, mm -hmm. but 
and that's interesting. So, um, I mean, I'm still sort of trying to figure out, um, you know, in terms of backing up and, you know, okay, so higher resolution won't really get you that much further, but uh, is there a way of, of potentially, you know, having some sort of adaptive parcellation that, I mean, if you really do want to pull out a phenotype, let's say, um, what would you do? I mean, what would you, would you, would it be some combination of, of, uh, what do you mean pull out a phenotype? What, what is that? What does that mean? Well, like, like to term it like uh, predictive modeling in some sort, like if you have like, you know, what people usually do is that, you know, obviously what you did with, with Emily, uh, for instance, uh, with her, uh, paper looking at IQ, yeah. for instance, that's like, yeah. a phenotype. and you know, you parcelate the brain, you, you look at the connectivity and you, you find that there's certain areas that are different as a function of IQ. Um, you might be able to find a, a lot higher correlation. I think something that was something like sixty percent uh, predictive power. But uh, you know, if you had, if you didn't, you know, restrict the yeah. parcels and just look at the connectivity, but if you allowed them to to vary, and obviously maybe had a naturalistic task or something. So how? So I guess the the question is, how could Emily's work? I mean, I always also I I always uh, you know, there's always the issue for me at least with if you apply the same parcellation across subjects, you might capture parcels yeah. in, a, in, a, in a way that, sure. um, but still it's not a correlation with intelligence. So, which was good, but I mean, what would you do? Uh, so given this understanding that, that parcels change with, with task, uh, maybe they're dynamically changing during resting state. Uh, how would you try to, is there a way and an assumption you can relax to sort of maybe pull out the information let me a little bit let better. me so uh let me ask you a question before i give you an answer uh how long between like when we do this and when is this published oh um <laughs> uh, as long as you want okay i'm going to talk not... about work we haven't published yet but we're uh, you know we're about to publish um so one of the this comes up when uh so i you know we've been collecting data in a transdiagnostic population and i think uh you know, the idea there is the whole NIH RDoC, which is that uh, that's the research domain yep. criteria. So everybody's on a spectrum. You and I have some levels of paranoia and we're somewhere on the spectrum and everybody's paranoia manifests in everybody's brain the same way sort of thing. Uh, and there's cognitive, you know, same thing with our attention systems, our memory systems should be pretty similar. Um, and that we're somewhere on a spectrum of all these different measures. Well. Uh, brain behavior modeling provides us a mechanism for measuring where you are on that spectrum and what your, you know, what circuits you use um, to yeah. uh, support those scores. Uh, and what I wanted to do was um, I wanted to provide models. So once you develop these models, you need pretty large populations to develop these models. But once you have those models, they work on individuals, right? So if you can share the models people could then apply those models to their, you know, unique patient groups and things like that. And it'll be really cool. And we'd all learn a lot of new, new stuff and, and that's going to happen. So, but then the, the question is, well, what do we do about this Atlas problem? And like, do I, do I do all this stuff with the Glasser Atlas? Because that's one of the most popular ones. Do I do it with the Craddock Atlas, the Schaefer Atlas, the Power Atlas, the Shen Atlas? And then I thought, well, I could propose to do a model for every one of those atlases, and you can then you know, work with whatever model you want. But then what we thought, and, and this is stuff we're about to publish, um, was well, why don't we take thousands of atlases uh, so we could generate a thousand random atlases of a thousand nodes each, let's say, and build okay. CPMs with those and find the overlapping 
nodes and find ultimately find or the overlapping voxels within each node such that ultimately yeah. we come up with an atlas free representation uh, like it's not dependent on what you started with an atlas free representation of the circuits supporting that function and so that's what we're going to publish next um and and i think that's it, it almost gets to um it's almost like ICA fundamentally. Uh, I mean, ICA yeah. will pull out the the components that vary with behavior, and that's kind of what we're doing in a roundabout way. But the difference here, I think, is that um, again, it's like the continuous node problem. Like, so ICA can have components that are are not spatially contiguous, right? Whereas in this case, we're we're assuming our our nodes are spatially continuous still. Um, and so what I hope to be able to do or show is that we can do Atlas free models, brain behavior models that, you know, are, are independent of what the starting Atlas was um, so that people can then. And the other nice thing about that is that each of those atlases could have overlapping nodes, but they don't all have to be the same nodes, right? They could be slightly different nodes because the behavior was slightly yeah. different. And so they may they may employ the same systems, but in slightly different ways. And I think that's that's going to be interesting to see. Um, but I think it it kind of gets at this problem of well, what do we do? You know, none of these atlases are right. How do we choose which atlas to use? And it's like, well, maybe we do a thousand random atlases and, and choose a consensus. And then do you choose a consensus so across all the subjects as well? So you choose some sort yeah. of consensus. It's consensus voxels, it comes down to not consensus nodes, you know. Yeah, and the and the only assumption I guess is that the subjects all have um certain number of nodes. Well, that's the assumption or... we have to go. Like we have to make some broad assumptions, right? About um and, and when you talk about resolution, that's another reason, you know, you were you were talking about, you know, anatomic differences and registering and things like that. And you know, we're gonna be constrained to this four hundred to a thousand node atlas sort of thing for a while because I, I think there was a paper um I could Bring it up. I have a citation to it somewhere, um, uh, showing that you know, in general, you get five millimeter, let's say, slop um, between people just because of neuroanatomy differences. You know, somebody's got two gyri here, and somebody else has one there, and stuff like yeah. that. And there's like it, at least five millimeters. It might even be more than that. Um, but so you're only going to do that well, right? In in group studies, and we have to. I think we have to do group studies. Um, there's lots of room to do individuals and, and super high resolution and things like that. And I think, you know, your, I, I hope we're going to talk about layer stuff because I do think there's a lot of sure. future stuff there and you had some nice work with Emily on the layer stuff. Uh, and, yeah. um, um, I think that, uh, uh, but we're, we, you know, fundamentally in these large studies where we look at brain behavior relationships across, you know, groups and individuals, those are going to be pretty limited to, you know, these blob size sorts of things. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, so, okay. So this might tie in a little bit with the, with the Merrick paper um, that you, you actually wrote a sort of a tangential thing uh, related to that, but I always felt that, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the Holy Grail is actually trying to get, you know, these biomarkers that, uh, that, as you said, can then be discovered and, and then applied to individual subjects and, either for predicting or, uh, you know, guiding sort of treatment. Uh, and I always thought, yeah, the big problem there was that, right, they, uh, you know, 
they did resting state the whole time series. They they put one atlas on all these subjects, and so the, things became blurred and significance went down. Um, so you're saying that you have a, a. So do you think that this sort of approach is a potential answer to the requirement of like two thousand subjects? Oh yeah. Data? So monica rosenberg and emily finn wrote a nice um follow-up to the merrick paper so the merrick paper is is a good paper in the sense that it's right, yeah. right? association yes. studies are flawed you need thousands of subjects even with a thousand subjects you you can still have like erroneous associations or, that aren't predictive uh emily and monica wrote that that's actually so I mean, one of the responses to the Merrick paper is like, yeah, we knew that. That's why we do predictive modeling. Um, and and that is the solution, right? So if you find an association, you know, the first step in in our predict in our brain behavior modeling, the first step is an association step. You're finding what are the edges that are associated with this behavior. And that's an association study. And that would not be valid if we just stopped there. But if you stop, if, if you do the next step, which is say, okay, these are the edges that are valid. Let's see if we can build a predictive model uh, based on that. And if it predicts in another sample, an independent sample, then great, I'll believe that. And that's how you get around this association problem. And I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, this is again where the field is funny. Like, so if you ask people, they go, yeah, that Merrick paper was good and I agree. But if you look at the literature and you go to talks, everybody's presenting association studies. Uh, like yeah. it, they haven't changed their behavior and it's kind of like, you know, we showed the flexible nodes and everybody's still using fixed atlases. Right. Um, but you know, yeah. so the field needs to grow and, and to absorb that message that, you know, these simple associations could be erroneous unless you can do prediction. Um, you know, it's, it, I, I don't necessarily believe you. And, and I'm surprised, I'm a little bit surprised at, well, maybe I'm not surprised. Uh, so not everybody's jumping on the prediction bandwagon. And part of the reason they're not jumping on the prediction bandwagon is it's hard and a lot of things fail to predict, right? You can find a lot of associations yeah. and probably a small fraction of those actually predict. And, um, you know, you kind of see this even in the, uh, oh boy, here's where I'm going to stick my foot in it. You kind of see this in the Enigma studies, right? So they, you know, Enigma likes to brag that they can, they have the techniques to pull together 30,000 different studies and, and to find that there's a 0.02% change in gray matter associated with depression or something like that. And it's like, well, can you predict yeah. in an individual? And if you can't predict in the individual, I mean, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with that, right? Yeah. Uh, right. So, um, <laughs> yeah, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but, uh, you know, what I really point out in that paper is that you know, you need to you need to take the extra step, see if it's predictive, and if it is, I'll believe you. You know, and and yeah. we get pushback. I got we got a lot of pushback early on in the predictive modeling stuff, saying, well, you know, if you're going to predict fluid intelligence, why not just give them a pen and paper and have them do fluid intelligence? And it's like that's not the point. You know, the point isn't to predict fluid intelligence. The point is to validate the model, to validate the association, yeah. right? And to and that association reveals the circuitry that we're looking at. And I, I tell you, I still get these comments on, so there's two comments that drive me crazy and I get these from grant panels all the time. And and you're catching me at a bitter time because I've had like a dozen grants rejected. I, I, you mentioned at the beginning of this that, you know, my lab's, you know, doing really well and publishing great and yeah, I can't get a grant. Um, but I, I get comments like, um, 
So we show that task is better than rest for building predictive models, right? And I think yeah. there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I, I was all happy to get into resting state because we didn't have to like tweak tasks anymore. And I was running out of ideas on what, you know, how to tweak a task. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, task-based data is way better than resting state data. And Emily's published on that and we published on that. Yeah. And um, yep. and I get reviewers saying, well, everybody does resting state. You know, I don't know why they're doing tasks. And, and, um, and it's like, well, I'm sorry, but they shouldn't be doing resting state, you know? Um, and yeah. I think there's actually a lot, you know, you want to talk about the future. I think there's a lot to learn with how tasks change the uh, the connectivity matrices and and provide no, new insights in, into brain. Um, but yeah. then I was going to, oh, and then the association stuff, you know, like we know that association models aren't good, but everybody still does them. Everybody still does resting state. Yeah. Everybody does five minutes of resting state. We know that that's not good. Right. Yeah, yeah, they should do it at least longer or, but right, but I, I totally agree. And and I think the worry that a lot of people have with tasks, obviously, you know, it's hard to get patients to do it just right. And also, well, I would, I, you know, so that's a comment I always get on the reviews, you know, it's like not practical for clinical application. We're doing a transdiagnostic study where we have like 95% success rate in, we're doing patients with major depression, schizophrenia, prodromal, you know, early, early psychosis. Um, we're doing all these people, you know, you know, there's sure there's going to be a small fraction of people that can't do the tasks, but these are not demanding tasks. You know, I mean, they're, you know, you can have eight year old kids do these tasks. Um, yeah. And just to write it off, that sounds like a, you know, that's a typical radiologist argument. Like they don't want to have to interact with yeah. patients. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you know, what's going to happen <laughs> is radiology is going to lose fMRI to psychiatry uh, because psychiatry will take make the efforts to actually run the tasks but that's a common criticism i get is that well you can't do it in patients it's like not true yeah yeah and and definitely there's you know you can design tasks that are like passive viewing or whatever i mean naturalistic movies and and i think people worry that you're stabbing in like one dimension and you might be missing something but i think oh yeah so i i totally agree with that but <laughs> that comes to another point which is that you know people design tasks and they go this is an attention task right and yeah, no, it's, it may, you know, work your attention system, but there's language, there's memory, there's perception, you know, all tasks are dirty. Uh, let's all agree to yeah. that, right? But if you have a suite of tasks that tap different dimensions to different extents, I think you can span the space that you're interested in and, uh, and find the components of cognition that you really are interested in. And so I think that I'm, I'm fully yeah. uh, willing to admit that any task I design is going to be messy and, and involve many different, you know, cognitive constructs. But um, I do think that I can get a set of these and find an orthogonal space maybe that isolates some of the components of stuff I want. So. Yeah. And it's, and it's actually, I mean, it's kind of what Emily is sort of building her career on right now. It's sort of like the idea of designing a litmus test and, you know, you have to sort of, you know, just do it just right, have enough dynamic range and sort of, do you have an hypothesis as to what difference you're looking for? And, uh, and you design it and, you know, you try to figure out what pulls people out, what pull stratifies yeah. things. So it's great. No, I think that's so, a good thing. So let me um, back up for a second here, because this is a good time to try to make amends with all the neuroanatomists that I've, <laughs> you know, offended. Um, 
So there's a ton you can learn about the brain through neuroanatomy and through structural NMR and diffusion tensor imaging and things like that. And there's some really fantastic work, you know, actually the Enigma Consortium is doing some really cool stuff there. And uh, Dan Margulies, you know, looking at gradients and uh, in the brain and how those uh, relate with uh, DTI and stuff like that. Um, there's, yeah. there's a ton of good groups out there learning about, you know, the evolution of the development of the brain and, you know, cross species work, how, you know, what the correlates are and things like that. So don't get me wrong. There's a lot you can learn about neuroanatomy. Um, and there's a lot of interesting stuff there. There, um, I, I think when we're talking about function, so I, I guess what triggered this is, you know, it, I'm going to come back to, it depends on what the task is, like what you're what are you trying to learn? Are you trying to learn about a certain behavior? Are you trying to learn? Are you trying to identify deficits? Are you looking for a biomarker? Um, and, and I think those questions, when you're designing a study, those are the important questions to have in mind. And, and um, you know, so I think that there's, there's a whole world again of tasks. Actually, there's a really good paper. Uh, so I'm into the whole brain behavior modeling thing. And then because of that, I'm, I'm into looking at all these different behavioral measures that people do in cognitive testing outside of the magnet and stuff like that. And there's a really good paper by Yael Niv out of um, Princeton uh, where she uh, makes an argument for, you know, don't forget about behavior, like everything's gone fMRI and people aren't doing enough behavioral studies. And she makes a compelling yes. argument that, you know, there's a lot to be learned by behavior. And in fact, she makes the argument that most of what we learned about the brain has come from behavioral studies. Um, but I do think that this functional connectivity and brain behavior modeling kind of weds the two, right? We can look at brain function and we can look at behavior jointly. And I think there's a huge yeah. future in that and sorting out these complexities of tasks and behavior and what the systems are that are supporting that. Um, and so... Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm excited about these days. Yeah, and and you know, right? There's so many dimensions of behavior. I mean, there's so many ways in which it's potentially organized. But but also even even looking at the, I mean, the other potential confound of the well, the BWAS paper was great, but um, the idea that uh, you know either you know the way they group the subjects, uh, you know, either psych, you know having psychiatric disorders or not. I mean, there's many many dimensions as you were suggesting before of of people's you know, behavior, uh, you know, there's many different, well, there's ways. many factors that influence what we see. Right. So <clears throat> we see this a lot in the field where, um, where somebody, you know, they put somebody in the magnet and they change their breath rate or something like that. And they, they show differences and they see, ah, oh, see the bold signal is, is all breathing. And, um, and, you know, you can do the same thing with caffeine or SSRIs or, you know, various disorders and and i guess my response to that is always that there, there can be a component of this in the data um but that's not the whole story right obviously there's something there that's real that we're you know we can do predictive modeling on for example um and and so you know and, and emily right in that first uh, the fingerprinting paper in nature neuroscience in 2015 showed that you know, we can still ID you under different task conditions and things like that. You you can tweak the brain in various, you know, ways with tasks, but you still kind of look like yourself. Your brain still looks like yourself. And uh, and all these other dimensions that people like to, you know, motion, well, not necessarily motion, but, um, you know, sleep, SSRIs, drug effects, things like that. Those also tweak the brain in, in certain ways. But for the most part, I do think that we can still extract stuff. But 
that yeah. touches on um, Abby Green's nature paper that we had in August, which is that these brain behavior models can actually reveal when the behavioral tests are not appropriate for the individual. And so what she did in that is we looked at for whom the model fails, right? So you have a brain behavior model, you, you have a line that relates um, <clears throat> how well, you know, your predictive versus observed score, let's say, and, and it fails for yeah. some people, like you just can't predict their scores. You predict they have a high score, but they have a low score or vice versa. And what she showed in that yeah. paper is that in some cases that can be attributed to biases in the assumptions of what the test is testing. Um, and, uh, and I think that's really interesting. And so I think that moving forward, we have this, this method now where we can, you know, the brain information can feed back on the behavioral information and the behavior can feed forward on the brain. So you have this feed forward feedback thing. And in fact, related to that is when you get into clinical measures, a lot of the clinical measures that they use in psychiatry um, are, you know, self-report measures and things like that. And they actually don't often have brain correlates. So we can, you know, you give us any sort of data set and we can model attention. Uh, it's super robust, but we've looked at hundreds of data, well, not hundreds of data sets. We, we've looked at tens of data sets and hundreds or thousands of subjects trying to model anxiety and we can't get anything with anxiety scores. Really? And so, you know, there are, there's this, there can be this feed forward feedback thing in, in brain behavior modeling that I think we're just at the beginning of exploring. And, you know, so what does that mean then if we don't find a brain correlate for a measure that is commonly used in, you know, clinical studies or in uh, behavioral studies? And I think that's an interesting question. Like, that, does that mean the measure is no good? Um, or does it mean, it just means that maybe it's complex, what it's reflecting has multiple brain correlates and across yeah. many subjects that's just washed out. Um, yeah. Maybe the term anxiety doesn't, yeah, right, it can be broken down yeah. in different ways. And, and, and so, so I think there's like a feed forward feedback mechanism here that that's ripe for exploration. Um, and I'm, I'm excited about, you know, exploring that uh, as we move forward. Yeah. And that's also interesting, right? I mean, uh, and, and but also there's the there's the concern that uh, the thought is that the the same type of behavior, like let's say some sort of manifestation of anxiety, could manifest itself differently uh, depending on the subject as well. Um, yeah, although the whole so, you know, um, so then maybe anxiety is not the right label, right? Maybe you need two labels because um, the whole right. I kind of do believe you know it's interesting the whole RDoc thing, and I, I know this is kind of American centric because um, the rest of the world isn't, you know, following the NIH guidelines. But um, <laughs> bear with us for a moment. The rest of the world, please. Uh, the the concept there is that you know paranoia manifests in the brain in one way, and uh, you may have different causes that you know tend to influence you such that you have this. But you know the the brain circuits are the same for everybody, and and so you you know, same argument should hold for anxiety, right? But if it doesn't, then does that mean that, you know, there are, maybe there's anxiety one, anxiety two, and anxiety three, and those are different, those have different manifestations or different brain bases, and we need to identify those. Yeah. And, and maybe that's the problem. Like what one person calls, you know, anxious behavior is, is not what another person calls anxious behavior. And so we need better tests. Yeah. And maybe the fact that we can't model these tells us we better look for better tests that, that can right. sort this out. And so I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, no, exactly. I think that exactly. I think that the, the this is sort of a test in itself of how well physicians, I mean, it's basically, you know, it's very practical. They probably look at the patient, they, they give some sort of assessment and, and it's a very practical assessment, but, but yeah, um, you could probably be better in terms of how you measure this behavior and these traits. Yeah. Well, so back to the physician thing is like, it turns out that many of the measures that psychiatrists use through their interviews of subjects and things don't have clear brain correlates. Uh, like we struggle to model them. Right. Um, and, and I, I, yeah. excuse me, I think that's interesting. That is interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, right. Even like, uh, yeah, you know, depression and I mean, they're all very complicated sure. and, and may not be, uh, you know, a circuit, uh, you know, it's, it's still, I mean, it, it, that's an open question, I think. For, you, and I think this is an interesting area, a really, really like rich area. Of so studying. if it's, and, it's it, you say yeah. it may not be a circuit. So if it's not a circuit, what do you think it is? So like, what would it be? Well, a not, may not be like uh, a set of simply identified circuits. Yeah. So it's maybe a complex um, set of circuits, it, but it could yeah. be right. Some sort of, you know, complex set of circuits that overlaps with a lot of other things. And um, yeah. Uh, and there also might be a hierarchy of circuits, circuits as well. So it might be, you know, you can imagine, um, you know, subcortical cortical interactions then cortex to cortex, and that's fed back and who knows where, uh, you know, specifically in that chain, you know, it could be anywhere in the chain that's uh, um, yeah. down, but who knows? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but then, yeah, you wanted to mention, uh, uh, you wanted to mention, I guess, layer fMRI to the extent that I, I just wonder how uh, even layer fMRI could, I mean, we're, we're struggling with, uh, uh, you know, trying to get our heads around all the data yeah. and uh, trying to make these, Connectivity, you know. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, congratulations be... for getting Renzo back. Um, that'll be great uh, to look at layer stuff. Um, he'll he'll be great to help help with that. Um, you, it, Renzo, you got back, right? Uh, yeah. 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 We're yeah. very lucky. Um, so the layer stuff. I just saw some uh, work by, um, you know, there's a, a joint effort with MGH and um, Berkeley, I guess, with David Feinberg on, you know, the next generation. Yeah kind of scanner and they're doing super high resolution. They think they can get 0.6 millimeter cube. I even heard 0.4 millimeter um, cube voxels. Yeah. And I think where that's really yeah. going to play really helpful will be in the layer stuff. And I really think that, um, you know, the stuff that you guys showed with Emily with the, and Renzo with the input output layers and, and things like that, that could be super informative. Yeah. And I think that's really exciting. Um, I also think that you, if you did uh, parcellation on the different layers, you might find different parcellations. <laughs> uh, yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it is funny how, uh, you know, you always start out with the sort of assumptions. You, you start out with an hypothesis of what the organization is. You look for something very specific. You make some assumptions. It doesn't It never matches. And so you have to you know, revise your assumptions and, uh, yeah, and, and look again. And, <coughs> But I think, you know, so the field has gone to these, you know, 10,000, 30,000, 50,000 subject studies. And that's that's one a, that's one arm of the field. I think that, uh, you know, the Merrick paper showed that if you're just going to do associations, you, you do need large groups. But I think, you know, yeah. Monica and Emily showed and, and we've shown that using predictive models 
gets around the the association study by validating that the association is predictive and that that's a huge step in, yes. in there and so in those sorts of studies if you can build models on 200 people or 400 people um, and validate them either in k-fold or independent samples then those models can be applied to individuals and so i think that we can span the whole range still i don't think there's anything out there that says we can't do you know important research on individuals and i think the layer stuff would often be in individuals going to be hard to combine individuals across layers and, and things but uh, there's tons that can be learned in studies like that and um and there's tons that can be learned in studies of fifty thousand people um so I, I think it's still, yeah. you know, I'm excited about the field. I think it's still a great time to be in the field. And even though it's been around for 30 years, I don't think we've figured everything out. Um, the whole, actually, I'm going to return to RDoc one more time. So this RDoc yeah. concept has been around for 10 years. It was, or maybe even more, actually, it was introduced like around 2014 by Thomas Insel when he was at NIH. And um, yes. it... Uh, and, you know, people are saying, well, yeah, I don't know where the RDoc is going. Most psychiatrists hate it because, like, they they believe that the right. interview is everything. And, uh, you know, you're not going to stick somebody in the magnet and find the schizophrenia area, which I agree. But um, but I think that the way research goes, you know, so it's been around for 10 years. And, and we're, you know, there were five years of people, like, kind of grasp, grasping these concepts and writing the grants. And, and now, five years after that, we're at 10 years and, and the data is just becoming available to actually start to test some of these principles. And so I think that's, uh, right. you know, I'm excited about that. And I think that it's it's way too early to write off some of these concepts. Uh, and there's there's a lot yeah. we can we can still learn about that. Yeah, I completely agree. I And, and also, and even there's some low-hanging fruit in the sense that uh, if you do have some sort of a, uh, uh, a predictive model that shows a circuit, I mean, you know, people like Michael Fox can go in and with you know neuromodulation potentially, you know, you know, guide some treatment in yeah. some sense. Uh, and as we learn more about those models, they'll they'll be able to refine those treatments and stuff. And so I think that's uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and even watch you. I mean, it, one thing that you didn't mention is also just you know the very deep imaging of individual subjects. You could actually look at you know longitudinal, yeah. you know, uh, how how a subject changes with some sort of intervention, which is very yeah. sensitive. In that regard. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, no, this is, uh, good. Sorry. Um, oh, let me, let me, yeah, let me so throw another thing out there. So, um, some of the neuroanatomy things that I, um, or my biases, uh, hopefully the WashU people won't take negatively. I look at the WashU group as an exemplary group that I try to, uh, uh, emulate and uh, they're a really fantastic bunch of people there. So uh, <laughs> let me just give that little, yeah, little yeah. comment. There's a lot of good people there and they do a lot of good science. You know, it's pretty impressive. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, we're all struggling, you know, at this edge of, of what we know and what we don't know. And so, and the brain obviously has many surprises as far as, uh, you know, what we can find, but, but definitely, I think it's the the popular press that sometimes you know takes hold of these things and says, "Oh, fMRI is useless." But nobody. Well, really sadly, knows. that's what happened with, a bit with the Merrick paper, right? It's like another another way for people to write off functional connectivity, and um, uh, or, or yeah, functional yeah. MR, I guess, in general. And um, you know, that's 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 not what they did, and that wasn't their intention. But that's often how it gets interpreted. In fact, I already had a grant rejected. Uh, because the reviewer didn't understand the difference between a predictive model that and and, and a general association study. Um, association study. So that's sad, but uh, true. Uh, 
So, yeah, I, I mean, there's um, there's a lot to do with communication and how we communicate these different ideas. I think that it's important for those studies like the Merrick paper to show, you know, where weaknesses are and things like that. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> but I don't think it, you know, it doesn't destroy the whole field. And I think that there's a lot of good work being done by all kinds of labs. Um, and if I didn't mention, you know, here the listener's lab, I'm sorry. Uh, there's lots of great labs out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and definitely it's becoming more interesting. And I do think that, uh, right. I mean, the field will keep on advancing as far as how we, you know, where we decide how to take our data and our, with, within the limits of what our signal to noise is. And we're getting a handle on variability and we're getting a handle on, you know, motion and things like that, that we're sort of, uh, have been struggling with over the years, but, but yeah. Um, but also, uh, right. Also at Yale, not with your group, but there's uh, you know, real-time feedback. Yeah. Michelle, which is also uh, potentially Michelle Hampson. Yeah. Yeah. The real-time feedback is really, uh, you know, Michelle's, Michelle's great. I, um, uh, she's making great headway in the real-time feedback, and uh, I'll tell you a funny thing about her is she was she was the first one in our group here to really be doing connectivity. I was kind of watching and going, eh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and now you know I'm fully immersed in connectivity, and and uh, she started doing real-time, and I was like, oh, I don't know if that's real, you know. But uh, she's she's been pursuing it, and she's making great progress, and it's becoming a field on its own, and. Uh, uh, you know, she's yeah. got some good insights, yeah. and uh, it's uh, it's really nice to see that uh, that work catching on, and and they're learning stuff with the real time feedback. I think it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and I think so. I think actually, I mean, you might agree with me. Um, you know, I'm going. I you know, I'm always talking with GE and Siemens and things like that as far as you know fMRI and. And, and I think that fMRI will really take off once it gets its foothold into, you know, some sort of clinical application. If there's suddenly a market, then, you know, then, then there'll be much more time spent on, you know, developing it for the general user a little bit more and for the clinic. And, um, but it's not quite yeah. there yet. Right now we're, you know, obviously. Uh, so where do you think, where do you think that would be? What application? Um uh maybe real time but i don't think it will i think the lowest hanging fruit is actually not for biomarkers um but i think that's coming i think the the two lowest hanging fruits are looking at sort of longitudinal changes like you know with intervention but even lower than that um more the physiology i think that um like for instance uh, there are really nice potential clinical applications of looking at bold latency uh relative to the global signal um, and sort of mapping the relative latency of the resting state. And really, you know, it compares well with gadolinium studies in terms of mapping out stroke regions or areas where the, the flow is, uh, you know, you're at risk for a stroke or yeah. something like that. So that might yeah. be, and that actually has more sense, just as much sensitivity as gadolinium. So that might be sort of like the one small inroad. And, uh, you know, it's still used for pre-surgical mapping, but yeah. hasn't quite caught on yeah. to that sort of thing yet. Yeah. That's interesting. It's it's in a little bit of um, so I I the applications you just mentioned there um, you know are kind of interesting. I hadn't thought about that in terms of you know stroke prediction or something like that. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> I do think that ultimately, you know, this is another thing that radiology is going to lose. Um, you know, radiologists don't tend to be interested in in understanding behavior you know they don't get into the fMRI at all right they don't want to push a button and, and right. look at look for a bright spot or a dark spot um, yeah. 
And I yeah. think that ultimately, if there are markers that work in psychiatry, um, then you know it'll be it'll become a psychiatric tool, um, and psychiatry departments will have their own MRI scanners. Um, but yes. that's long down the road. And part of the reason that's down the road is even if you had a marker, there's not that many different treatments right now. You know, the the idea is that you know part of the the main thing you're looking for in a psychiatric population is will this treatment work on this individual, right? This patient before me. And um, right. right now there's only a few treatments, you know, uh, there's yeah. behavioral therapy and there's drugs and um, there's only like one or two different types of drugs. Uh, and so there right. isn't really, you know, they, they try combinations of those for a period of time. And if they don't work, they switch to something else. And, you know, the hope would be yeah. that you could, you wouldn't have that trial and error period. You could, go to the right treatment for the right person at the, at the start. Um, yeah. But I, I see a future there. I mean, I do think that we should be able to make some inroads there. Uh, it, it looks promising. And, um, yeah. yeah, but that'll come out of radiology at that point and um, be, yeah. Right. I mean, I think, I think neuromodulation has, you know, TMS has some potential, yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, Tom Insel, it's kind of ironic, you know, he, you know, Head, head of the NIH and he, you know, all, all this research is being done. And, and now his sort of view has shifted. Like, you know, we really do need more, you know, social support structures to help people as opposed to, you know, intervening on the surface. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't think they're exclusive, right? I think, um, right. Yeah. You know, I, I think right. there could be avenues for both. A lot of industry though, got out of the whole psychiatric drug field. Right. I mean, basically, uh, uh, yeah, I think Pfizer shut down their whole, neuroscience uh wing at one point right um, yeah yeah so yeah it's uh you know so if if we're gonna make the idea of a marker in psychiatric illness is to assign the correct treatment but if there's only a few treatments um you know that that's a harder i guess it's fewer choices so it's an easier decision maybe but uh um hopefully there'll be developments along the treatment front too that uh we can impact down the road yeah yeah, I completely agree. So, you know, enough to keep yeah. us busy uh, for a long, a long, long time. <laughs> um, so, uh, I see we're we're running up against time, but um, just to just to sort of uh, well, two two quick things. One, um, you know, you're still busy doing things like uh, uh, you know, looking at uh, nonlinear gradient reconstruction and things like that. Is that um, how much time do you spend with that? Is it yeah. something you're Thanks for asking about that. That's uh, really cool stuff that I'm really excited about. So, you know, we got into the whole nonlinear gradient thing because everybody was doing parallel imaging with more and more coil elements. Um, and uh, we asked the question of if you're going to do some spatial encoding with your coil elements, so that's parallel imaging, does it make sense to use linear X and Y gradients or is there some other gradient shape that might be more complementary to the information that the coils give? And that yielded O space imaging, which Jason Stockman, who's now faculty at Harvard, uh, you know, published on O space imaging, and that's that kind of that's a Z squared nonlinear gradient. Um, and then we went crazy with that, and we did null space imaging, where we calculate the null space of the coils and calculate gradients that you know are orthogonal to that. And that used all sorts of different spherical spherical harmonic terms to you know do spatial encoding and you can get additional acceleration factors of like two and in fact siemens now has a gradient in their new sema magnet which they just announced at rsna um, a gradient that could be 
used to impose some of these nonlinear waveforms on top of the readout gradient. For example, we have a technique that uh, we developed with Gigi Galliana here called Fronsac, and that buys you a factor of two in acceleration, uh, you know, over what you can do with the coils. Yeah. But <clears throat> in doing that work, we ended up, um, uh, you know, embracing nonlinearities, and we know how to reconstruct images in nonlinear fields. And it kind of led to this whole, well, you know, why don't we make everything nonlinear? Like we don't even need a, linear, a, a uniform gradient and we use a non-uniform B-naught. And so I have this tabletop MR system I'm working on, which is, you know, designing an MR magnet in, a, in an exam table. Uh, so to be underneath the table and it has this kind of, <clears throat> you know, dome-shaped B-naught field. And there's inhomogeneities yeah. all over the place and everything's nonlinear, but um, we can deal with all that. And in fact, we introduced, you know, field cycling as a way to solve the non-uniformity problem. So if you, you polarize at a high field where everything's, you know, would be dephasing if it was in the XY plane, um, but then you drop the field for the imaging part. So if you drop the field by a factor of 100, you drop the field inhomogeneities by a factor of 100 and it, it becomes manageable. So like we polarize at point, 5t or 0.6t and we read out at like a megahertz and um and it's pretty cool and and the idea would be to not compete with high field mr <clears throat> but um to compete with ultrasound so i think we can make much better pictures than ultrasound has and ultrasounds used in doctors offices all over the place and i think that we could put right. these in doctors offices and you know they could say well why don't you hop on the table and we'll take a look um and that's kind of the plan there. So I'm very excited about that. There's a whole explosion in low field imaging now. You know, for years since the inception of MR, it's gone to higher and higher field strengths. Now I think there's a recognition that 20, or, you know, let's say 20% of Americans have access to health, uh, to MRI and 80% don't. And I think those numbers hold for the world. Like there's some 80% of the world doesn't actually have any access to MRI imaging. And so that's a pretty big, uh, I don't want to say market, but a pretty big untapped uh, uh, group of people that could benefit from having a first look um, with a low field device. And I think that's the recognition a lot of people have made that that's a, a huge potential growth area for MRI. And uh, so I have kind yeah. of two labs. I have my physics lab, which does that. And I have my neuroscience lab, which does all this stuff we've been talking about. And uh, I have a yeah. foot in both of those and it's pretty fun. Uh, yeah, that's that's perfect. That's an awesome balance. I know, you know, I know, you know, who was it? There, you know, group in Stanford was Conley. Yeah, Steve Conley and Greg Scott had a field cycling magnet for doing uh, extremity imaging. Although that was a conventional system, like they had a uniform field, and they were trying to, you know, do knee imaging and things like that. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so field cycling, we didn't invent field cycling. In fact, there's a whole field in chemistry that does field cycling because you can introduce other contrast mechanisms through field cycling actually. Um, and yeah. so that's been, actually everything on this magnet has been done before we we're doing, um, you know, the, we're doing block secret shift for, uh, for uh, spatial encoding and that's been done before. Uh, all the nonlinear yeah. stuff has been done before. Um, but, you know, we put them together in what we think is a unique package. Yeah. And uh, I think it's kind of, uh, it's cool. And we're starting to get images from it right now. So um, it's been fun. That's really cool. Yeah. That's exciting. I mean, and then sometimes, right, it's, it's, it's you know, the time is ripe when the technology just advances just a little bit in terms of doing certain things and materials. But, uh, but yeah, that's awesome. That's, yeah, that's good fun. Um, 
Yeah, maybe maybe fMRI can be done. Well, I don't know. So, Everybody always asks me that. I guess you could. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, fMRI is pretty low signal, uh, and you do it does help to have a higher field to get a bigger bold signal. Um, uh, you know, we could probably design a head-specific magnet in this uh, with a sort of nonlinear field, but it, it's got a lot of things against it there. So uh, I'm not pushing yeah. it for that. Yeah. I'm pushing it for either interoperative or it could be a mammography scanner or it could be, um, you know, it doesn't involve x-rays, right? Or it could be a liver yeah. scanner, for example, uh, with, you know, liver clinics. They want to know if people have fatty liver disease um, and you could do that with this sort yeah. of thing. So. Or you could stick one of these on yeah, the wall. Pretty... It doesn't have to be in a patient bed. You could stick it on the wall and do weighted spine imaging, um, you know, that's which awesome. is uh, yep. has always been a thing that the orthopods have always wanted. You know. That is so cool. Yeah, no, that's that sounds that sounds great. That sounds great. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. Who knows? But maybe uh, right. Maybe at low field. I'm always thinking of you know oxygen-related T1 changes or things like that, that, uh, that you might see at T1 or your neural yeah, that yeah. you can actually see at the field or whatever. But but anyway, um, I, will, I won't take it much of your time anymore, but, um, but just one last question then. Uh, I, what I always ask a lot of my guests is that, you know, what would be your advice to, you know, someone starting out, maybe, maybe from the technical side or, or from the data processing side or whatever in the field of fMRI or brain imaging, what would be... Where do you, I mean, given what you know about where you think the field is going, what would you recommend it? strategies or? Well, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a, <laughs> so I think to be successful in science, you know, you know, there's a lot of smart people that actually aren't successful in science. I, I've come to learn. Uh, I think there needs to be uh, a level of creativity, right? Um, and there also has to be a balance uh, between knowing like when to wrap something up and 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 or keep going, yep. but you know try to do good work, do stuff that interests you. Uh, there's a million things to discover. Uh, the field is you know certainly brain mapping or even the MR physics stuff. Uh, the fields are are all rich and uh, in terms of information content and and stuff that needs to be discovered. It's interesting when you and I got started in the field. I thought that. Um, you know, I think in the early days of MR, it, everything had been done, right? Like uh, when I got started, I was thinking, oh, you know, MR is kind of maturing and everything's kind of been done. And that was like 30 years ago. And it's still been going full yep. steam since. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there's a ton to do, uh, whether that's in industry or academia, it doesn't matter. Uh, I think people have more flexibility now. Certainly the data science stuff is interesting. And I think integrating information from multiple modalities and wearables and all that kind of stuff is, is going to be uh, a yeah. rich area to pursue. Um, so there's all kinds of uh, really cool things to get into. I'd say do interesting stuff, be creative, uh, work hard and enjoy it. Yeah. That's great advice. I especially like the idea of right not siloing yourself, sort of keeping an open mind for you know, you know other possibilities, other modalities, integrating it other uses. And uh, yeah, that's, that's wonderful advice. Uh, and I totally agree. There's tons of smart people who maybe because they're rigid or something, uh, right. Just don't, or just unlucky. Yeah. Well, there's that too. Uh, yeah. Uh, you gotta yeah. be lucky. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You gotta be lucky. <laughs> but, a little bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Awesome. Well, well, thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time to talk and, and I think that this discussion, I think, will a lot of people um, 
especially along the lines of uh, you know, predictive modeling and parcellation and how to take fMRI to the clinical realm. We'll, we'll keep on going. So, so thanks Great. Again. Thanks. Appreciate um, much appreciated. Thanks for inviting me to do this, Peter. Good talking to you. All right. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Anastasia Brovkin and Jeff Mensch.